This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you're joining us today. This is our fourth episode in the six-part series for nutrition for athletes. I do think we might add one or two episodes more because we're having so much fun with this series. This episode of the podcast is supported by Inside Tracker. If you don't know what's going on with your lab work, it's going to be really hard to run to your full potential. And I know that's important to most people listening here for this podcast. Last week, In the episode with Anna Turner, we talked about breaking down lab work and what different values mean. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. Inside Tracker, though, is an ultra-personalized performance system that analyzes biomarker data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness tracker to help you optimize your body and reach your health and wellness goals. When you get your lab work back, they let you know if you are in a risk zone, if you are in a place where you need optimized or if you are fully optimized in that category. So they don't just merely show the normal biomarker zones that you're gonna see from a regular doctor's office. They show you where you need to be if you wanna be optimized. And each recommendation is backed by science, rigorously reviewed and directed, linked to a published peer-reviewed scientific research publications. For a limited time, you all can get 20% off at Inside Tracker. When you go to insidetracker.com slash another, use the code another and that'll get you 20% off. If you go directly to that landing page though, insidetracker.com slash another, that should apply it as well. All right, friends. Well, today's episode is with Starla Garcia. She is a registered dietitian, an Olympic trials marathoner. She's the host of her own podcast, Fuel for More podcast. And she is passionate about helping runners fuel for better energy, training, and personal best times. If you're not following her on Instagram, you need to do it. It is Starla underscore shines over there. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about cultural foods and sports nutrition and the importance of cultural and body diversity and running. And we also talk about gut issues and how to prevent having to deal with that during your long runs and your marathons. Starla is full of knowledge, super passionate about what she's doing, and I am so excited to share this episode. If you're loving this nutrition series, please share it with any friends that you think might benefit from it. My biggest hope is that this helps you all become stronger, more well-educated athletes when it comes to your body and your performance. And leave us a quick rating interview on iTunes. That is a helpful way new listeners can find us or Spotify. I think it's just a rating over there. And I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy my conversation with Starla. All right. Well, today on our nutrition series for the podcast, I'm so excited to welcome Starla Garcia to the show. Welcome to the show, Starla. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. Super excited to chat with you. Starla is an Olympic trials marathoner and also a registered dietitian. Starla, when did you get excited about nutrition and why is this a passion for you? 
I got excited with nutrition and it became a passion um, of mine. I'd say um, probably after undergrad, um, which is kind of interesting because I did nutrition in undergrad, but I would, it wasn't necessarily like a passion for it. I think I was like interested in it more for like selfish reasons on like how to like improve my own nutrition or like how to stay thin or like, you know, things like that when I was in undergrad and I couldn't like succinctly like say why I wanted to be a dietitian. Really, I knew I was on track to be one, but it wasn't until like I um, finished my collegiate career at University of Houston and then entered recovery from an eating disorder um, after um, my last year of of undergrad. And then when I started doing graduate research uh, when I was in grad school, like that's when it all kind of came together. And I saw um, the importance of nutrition, not just for athletes, but for everyday life as well. And like really put that to practice in like my own training and seeing like how the daily habits that I was um, doing were so important to how I was feeling on a daily basis. And then like really prioritizing more of the fueling aspects once I, when I got into marathoning. When did you see a shift in your own life? Like I'm doing this in a way that is intuitive to fuel my body, not about how much I weigh, what I look like, and just so I can run faster. Um, I think that whole shift happened when I was right in the middle of undergrad and grad school. Um, I didn't know if I was going to go to grad school yet. I hadn't received my acceptance letter. Um, so I was just kind of waiting around for like the next thing. I had graduated. I was still running like, you know, just for my own like like fun and pleasure like there was no real like goal to it anymore because I had finished collegiate training and even though I had a fifth year at University of Houston I didn't know if I was going to get to do that fifth year because I was waiting on my grad school acceptance letter so I was just like well I guess I'm just running and like enjoying life Um, and that's really what it was like I was just like all right, like, this is what I actually really like to do. And I had also just read a book called Eating in the Light of the Moon, um, my last semester of undergrad. And it really spoke to me. And it really spoke to the rhythms of being a woman and what does womanhood look like. And that was like one of the things that I think was really holding me and tying me down in my eating disorder was that uncertainty of what does adulthood look like? And what does adulthood look like? for me as a Latina woman, like entering this new graduate world and waiting for my fifth year of you know, of collegiate training. Like, what does that look like in this, like a middle ground? Because I didn't know anybody else that had gone through it and I couldn't rely on somebody close to me to tell me what to do. I had to like really trust what, 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 what my own wisdom was going to tell me what to do. So when you say that, it makes me wonder, is it less prevalent in the Latina community to have an eating disorder? Um, I don't think it's less prevalent. Um, what we do see a lot more now is like binge eating disorder. Um, like that is becoming more prevalent. Um, and I do think like the more that we get diagnostic testing done within that community, we see it come up more. Um, so it's not that it's more prevalent. I just think that more people are becoming more aware of it now that that is an issue. And did you feel, you know, I feel like a lot of times when we have anything in regards to our mental health, mm-hmm. we have this like shame attached to it. Like I should be fine. I should be fine, but I'm not fine. Did you have those feelings? 
Um, yeah, definitely. I dealt with a lot of guilt around like legacy and especially being um, somebody that had left home so young. I was like the first one in my family to leave home that young, even though my my dad had like a college degree and also my older sister who was already in law school at the time, but she had left home like when she was in her mid twenties at that point. So like I was the first one to really leave home as a teenager and like pursue something um, alongside education that was so selfish. It sounds like the book, The Eating in the Light of the Moon, was a key player in your recovery. But were there any other people that were key players? Um, the book was definitely a key player. And I did work with a dietitian and I worked with a therapist um, pretty regularly throughout my time at, um, in college. And that was really helpful. Um, I do think they were like pillars of you know, where I could go to for like information if I wasn't sure on stuff or if I was doing things correctly. Um, But I would say another person that really was helpful in my journey was actually my professor that recommended to me that I read that book. And she had also had her own private practice in ED counseling. So she knew that I was struggling and I had done like a counseling course as well, uh, right when I was like starting my own treatments, which was so crazy. So it was like, paralleling everything that I was learning in school, like I was also going through personally. Um, So she had seen me from like the very beginnings and then like towards the very end where it was like, all right, like you got to make a decision now. Are you going to like actually like um, release yourself into recovery or are you just going to like be in limbo here for the rest of your life? And like she never really said those words to me, but it was definitely coming down to that decision. Wow. Um, how do, how does your everyday look like now with your husband and when you travel and you go to races and are you able to separate, you know, like doing things revolving around food? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I, um, I really reflect a lot on like what some of the things that I used to do when I was in the middle of it, how hard it was and how hard the decisions were. And I think because in the early stages of my recovery and even like working extensively with the team, like I think that really set me up to have a solid foundation. Um, but I always like encourage people who are in the beginning stages of your recovery is like, it never ends. And like, that's kind of like, the really interesting part to me is like, it is an ongoing experience. And like, there is no end point to recovery. And I think because I accepted that really early on, like, it's just kind of evolved into like this further exploration of who I am and who how am I changing throughout the years. And like, I'm not always going to be the same and my interests are not going to be the same and the things I talk about and like the things I learn are not going to be the same. So I think recovery is just like releasing yourself to the ongoing changes that I'm going to encounter as a woman um, from here on out, because it's like my hormones are going to change. Like eventually, like things are not going to be the same. And um, I think like in my own like day-to-day life now, um, I actually try not to be very rigid at all with a lot of things. I actually really have learned to value and appreciate autonomy. And I think that's why I really enjoy working for myself now, because I have that ability to be self-agent in a lot of the things that I do in my schedule, my time, my energy, and like all of those things. So whenever I go on vacation now with like my partner, 
Um, there really is no schedule too much anymore. And there is no like, we need to eat lunch at 12. It's mm-hmm. like, all right, well, what sounds good? Like, what do you want to eat? And like, we just kind of um, feed off of each other and like make those decisions together. And I think because of um, learning intuitive eating and also understanding my own feelings, it's been really helpful to like continue that autonomy that I need. You know, it's interesting as you were talking about that, it made me think of like addiction recovery with alcohol or even drugs. And because, you know, usually when you decide like I need to live an alcohol-free life and you say you're in recovery, it's the same thing. That's why people go to, you know, like meetings consistently throughout their life. And there's this like slippery slope and this dance if like, oh, well, like I could have one drink, but then you're like, you know, going you know, reverting back, reverting back. So as you were talking about that being just like a constant process, mm-hmm. I think people want to hear like it's going to be over and it's fixed, but like it's kind mm-hmm. of just your lifelong endeavor. Yeah. And I think like that's not to say like I'm doomed forever um, right? either. And I think that's like uh, like a really pessimistic way of looking at recovery. I actually like really relish in my own recovery process like I I enjoy being in recovery and I enjoy Mm -hmm. that exploration like a lot and that's why I think like when people are afraid of it now like I can I can definitely empathize with them but I'm also like yeah but you get to like learn about yourself like for the rest of your life like why do you want to be the same person forever like that doesn't sound appealing to me like I would rather like you know, continue learning about myself. And I think that's what I like so much about running too, because it parallels that exploration. Like running is this vehicle to continue exploring and understanding yourself, right? Um, And I think like if people just want to be the same all the time, then what's the point to running then? Mm. That's a really beautiful way to look at it. Um, You know, I think that a lot of runners, a lot of people start running because they want to lose weight. Like they're like, okay, like this is going to be my new exercise regimen. And, you know, I even actually had an athlete recently who I'm coaching say, you know, like, oh, they wanted to lose a few pounds. And I always refer people to a dietitian anytime someone, you know, mentions anything about food or nutrition or weight. Um, but I, you know, I just responded to her, like, I think we should focus on the process of getting your, your fueling needs in and, you know, excelling and running and not thinking about like what our body is doing as far as weight goes. Um, but do you have runners like coming to you for that purpose because they think they can run faster because they, if they lose weight? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I always think it's kind of interesting, um, that somebody would come to me for that Yeah, um, because I have an eating disorder history. And so it's kind of like, in my mind, it's a little ironic, like, oh, you're going to somebody that knows how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, has had a lot of experience and gone like the, the, like the way that we don't want to go. But I think like, whenever somebody comes to me, I'm thinking about it, like, okay, like, like, that's like a measurement that that person may, may feel like they need to go like, or they just don't know anything else. Right. And so I'm kind of just looking at it in that perspective first. 
Um, and then I just ask a couple more questions of like, like who they are as a person, like what happened recently that like made them feel like they need to lose weight mm -hmm. um, and really understanding like maybe the last couple of years of their life a little bit more, because that may give me some more insight of like, what else can I look at with this person? Because I can't promise weight loss. Like that's a measurement that nobody can really promise anybody um, or that their life is going to improve or that the running is going to improve with weight loss as well. Like we can't make those promises as running coaches or as dietitians, but what we can encourage somebody is that they, that they're maybe going to feel better, that they're going to be more energized, that they're going to wake up with more vitality, um, with enthusiasm. Like maybe those are things that we can measure, um, a little bit more and track alongside that person, um, versus just solely looking at the weight loss. And that doesn't mean that weight loss is a bad thing at all. I don't want people to think like I'm anti weight loss either, but I do think like if somebody is, um, really wanting to improve their running, there's a lot of other things to look at. And if you're trying to improve energy, become stronger, then weight loss is not the only measurement to look at. Like maybe we do need to track other things that are gonna give us a much better look at what your energy is like on a daily basis because weight loss and energy, they're two separate things. Mm, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I have my lowest energy when I'm underfueled, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's when you are lowest in energy. You know, I was thinking about that when you said, um, it's okay. It can be okay if you want to lose a little bit of weight, because I feel like we've kind of been in this, um, stretch in the world where it's like frowned upon even to say you want to lose a little bit of weight. Like I think of myself postpartum even, and like, I'm like, I just know I will be more comfortable in my body if I do lose some of this weight. Um, but it's almost like, I feel like it's frowned upon to even say that because we, we do want to celebrate body diversity, which is something we're going to talk about today. Um, but also like, I think it's important to have grace for people who like do want to, in a healthy way, lose a little mm -hmm. bit of weight. Right. Right. And I think too, like that may be like a far off goal, but like, okay, what are the short term goals there? Like, all right, like, do we need to incorporate more vegetables? Like, that's a goal that we can actually like look at a lot better. Or we maybe we need to incorporate more water, or maybe we do need to like have more protein in our diet. Like, what are the steps that are going to help you get there? And it's not just like eating less all the time, either. Like, eating less may not work well to even give you that weight loss that you actually desire, right? Or those body composition changes, you may have to really like separate that as well and then tease it like because it may actually have to be like, maybe we do need to incorporate more strength training, maybe we do need to incorporate um, more protein or more food into your diet, right? Like, it's not always going to be like this linear eat less and lose weight either. And I think that's where people do um, start to underfuel and get the weight loss mis misconstrued. Um, I love what you say there. It reminds me of, um, I think it was Scott Fobble on this podcast talking about like focusing on the process over the outcome. Like, yeah, maybe you want to run a 2.30 marathon or like a four-hour marathon, but like that can't, that might be a, a long-term goal. Like you said, like the weight loss might be the long-term goal, but like what is the process? What are the processes <laughs> you need to take and that's what the immediate focus needs to be. 
Right, right. And I think too, like when it comes to running and weight loss, um, like if somebody's trying to lose weight, like within the 12 weeks leading up to a marathon, like that is not the time to be prioritizing that either you're going to finish the marathon and like not have GI issues and cramping, or like you're going to prioritize that over finishing, right? And I think that's where we do need, I think dietitians may need to put their foot down more is like, no, like you can't, like, it's, it's going to be very challenging. You put yourself at a lot of risks as well, like injury, pulling something, um, not feeling well, not able to finish your long runs either. And then that impacts somebody's confidence on race day two to where they don't feel like they measure up to everybody else where they can't finish. And then that impacts body image as well. So that's why I'm like, if you want to lose weight, like it has to come like months before your race date and do it in a way that's going to be healthy as well. Um, Because if you're trying to do it immediately and fast and do that fast fix, it's not worth it. And in my opinion, and also if we go even further, you could end up having a lot of hormonal issues happen that are going to cause longer lasting impacts that you may not like, you may not enjoy at all either. A quick break here. Thank you, Athletic Greens, for supporting this episode. I love this natural partnership with Athletic Greens during this nutrition series. I started taking AG1 because I wanted more energy. I wanted to focus on my gut health and optimize my immune system. So what I do is I just wake up in the morning, shake it up into some water and drink that right before I have my coffee. I give it like 20 minutes because it is best absorbed on an empty stomach. And what I love about AG1 is you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens. It's such a great way to start the day. And I looked at the ingredients and kind of double crossed over what my inside tracker results were telling me to see if I was hitting some of those categories from this alone. And I was. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one Thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. It's the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Lindsay. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Lindsay to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, back to the show. Um, so let's talk about when we have food o- overwhelm and like, what is the, where's the first place to start? I think a lot of people want to fuel well to mm-hmm. perform and mm-hmm. to feel good. Right. Mm-hmm. But we aren't totally sure where to start with food choices. So like, what is like a good starting place? I think a good starting place is to first write down what you're doing. Um, I think like lack of awareness is a big one. Mm -hmm. And some people just like, they can't tell me like what they ate like the day before. 
Um, like I, when, whenever I start working with somebody is just like getting an idea of what they're doing first. And I think like writing it down, it doesn't have to be like, we're measuring every single thing, but at least like writing down, like, all right, did you have a pancake? Did you have anything else with the pancake? Um, like, did you have water before you had a pancake? Did you have coffee before? Like, those are details that maybe you want to pay attention to. Like, um, and I think that's important. So getting a general awareness first and then like figuring out like, okay, like, do like, where is my protein? Like, can you identify that? Can you identify your carbohydrate? Can you identify where your fruits and vegetables are? Like, do you have a general idea of how much water you're drinking? Like, those are just like basic things to first like look through and sift through and then like working on like where can we improve and like what are the areas that you're having the most difficulty with like because I think where food overwhelm happens a lot too is like when somebody feels like they can't stop eating or they're just like having a lot of hunger um, and they can't figure out why because they feel like they've been eating all day long and I think everybody has been there at least once in their life oh yeah um, and so I think like understanding like, all right, like if I'm having um, like overeating and like binging over occur at snack time, well then like, what is the first half of my day looking like? Am I fasting? Am I prioritizing my recovery nutrition? Like those are definitely the next steps there then. Like you have to identify like what you're doing and to do that, maybe writing it down and having that awareness of what you're doing first is like the very first step. You know, personally, my biggest struggle with overeating is like the mm-hmm. over snacking at like 4 p.m. And then I'm not like sufficiently hungry for dinner, which I want to be because I want to fully enjoy my dinner. But I've been like mm-hmm. snacking while I cook or just like, you know, it's been too long since lunch mm-hmm. and my last snack. So I'm just like scarfing chips. Mm-hmm. That, it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've been there too. I mean, everybody has been there and I think that's where like, we want to maybe look at like the first half of the day and Mm -hmm. see like, all right, like if we add in more protein and then like still continuing to track it, right? Like, do we have like, whenever I add like an extra egg, do I end up feeling better? Like, does that person aware of how those extra grams of protein in that egg impact the rest of the day too and like maybe we don't have to be like super tedious with it but I think like actually paying attention to like even how those changes are impacting that person like that's I think where a lot of nutrition habits can actually stick is like when you have that awareness you educate yourself on what your sources of food are and then you're able to reflect on what's happening what are your pain points in the day and then implementing something and then observing what's happening. And if you uh, are moving in the direction that you desire, then maybe that is the direction that you need to continue to move in. That's a really good point. I usually just have one egg in the morning. I always do a lighter breakfast for some reason. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I know I would be full longer and like sustained longer if I would be heavier Mm -hmm. on breakfast, even if it's after my run or whatever. But for some reason I do small breakfast. Mm -hmm. Do you see that mm-hmm. a lot? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually have a post on that coming up. Oh, too. good. Oh, good. Well, we'll link that to the show. That's yes. interesting. Okay. Because it's like, yeah. usually I'll eat like, if say I'm going to run at like 630 in the morning, I'll eat like a piece of toast with peanut butter and jelly on it um, okay. in my coffee and, and like yeah. a big cup of water. 
And mm-hmm. then I eat maybe an egg and toast when I get back, but it's usually just one egg, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. like from being up from five that there, I'm like five to 10. That's really not that many calories or that much food in that time frame. If you've mm-hmm. also run for an hour in that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. I bet if you went up a little bit on your protein, you would feel better yeah. in your morning. And then you would probably feel the difference at lunch or in that snack time too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a lot of like, I don't know if miscommunication is the right uh, term, but like maybe lack of education with mm-hmm. cultural foods in uh, the dietitian world and the running world. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could share a little bit with us why it's important to incorporate cultural foods into your diet. Yeah. So um, there's definitely a lack of cultural diversity in sports nutrition or just in the nutrition world in general. And that's mainly because like there's not a lot of dietitians of color. We're definitely working to improve that. I know my friends over at Diversified Dietetics have really made a push for that. Um, And I also take on interns as well and try to nurture students so that way they're more aware of cultural diversity um, in sports nutrition. But um, yeah, it's definitely become more of a passion of mine. Um, And I think it's really important to include it because we're seeing like this increase as well of athletes of color. And with that, that's going to come with a lot more cultural traditions. Um, There's also going to be a lot more maybe things like we're seeing like those increases of eating disorders as well, um, body image concerns, and really this need to fit into this runner ideal, right? And so by encouraging more of these cultural foods, we're actually still helping that runner really form their own identity and really encouraging and that confidence within their own runner identity at the same time. And I think with cultural foods, it's really important to continue to nurture that because I think whenever we're trying to fit into this mold, we tend to lose a lot of the cultural foods that maybe somebody grew up with. Um, They end up having to change a lot of their diet. It causes a lot of friction within the family unit if they're with if they belong to a family unit um so i think like in long term it is more helpful for that athlete to be able to get a better picture of what does health look like for me not just like as an athlete but as a person within my family that needs to go to work that needs to make decisions alongside holidays traditions things like that like where does my culture fit so that way I can also be the best athlete that I can be at the same time. Um, and I see it a lot, like, um, even like with my own journey, right? Like that was a thing that I had to learn and also overcome um, and working through my own thoughts around cultural foods. I thought that a lot of my cultural foods were not healthy, that they were not going to make me a better runner and that I had to eat certain foods in order to be the best runner possible. And since learning and unpacking a lot of those things on my end, I've now seen like, no, I actually like really feel a lot better. I have a stronger identity when it comes to when I line up at the start. I don't body compare um, like I used to when I was younger. I actually feel much more confident in how I look and how I present myself and how I feel on race day as well. And whenever I'm running, I can actually like 
feel much more present um, in uh, the entire training cycle. And I feel like everything comes together a lot better because I paid attention to my culture. I didn't like, I didn't skip out on anything that I felt like was important to me because I didn't think that there was going to be lack of healthy food options there, like just things like that. So the entire journey, whenever I start working with a client that's having similar issues, their entire journey ends up feeling a lot more seamless and it starts to feel a lot more like, oh yeah, like I can continue to be a runner long-term because this doesn't feel like I have to give up everything in my life to do this one thing. Yeah, because I, I'm picturing someone starting mm-hmm. their running journey and then just like, you know, Googling, you know, mm-hmm. foods for runner and runners mm-hmm. and things like that and then just not seeing anything that they typically would eat at mm-hmm. holidays and just on a regular basis. And then where do they go from there? Yeah, yep, exactly. And I, I think like, um, like there was a post that I created one time about like the malas and it, like that, that post actually making that post was like for me. Um, and it, it was for me because I remember being younger and like knowing that I had indoor coming up and I didn't want to eat the malas during my holiday break with my family, like stuff that my grandmother made for me. Mm-hmm. Like it was such a stressor for me and I felt so bad, but at the same time I had so much shame because like I was rejecting this thing that my grandmother had done for me and like there was like love embedded into it there was history embedded into it and like she wanted to teach me how to make it and like I couldn't allow this person to do that for me so um whenever I when I think it was like a year or two ago when I made it it was really for me because I was looking back on that time and I was like wow like here I am like years later and like able to eat these things and like enjoy them and like asking grandma to make them with me, right? So it's like those kinds of things like we want to encourage, right? And like maybe not just the malas with like all of my clients, but like what are those similar foods for that person? Like can we we encourage them in between and can we encourage them during as well? Because when we do that, we are able to create a more wholesome athlete at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the only way we're going to succeed is if we have this holistic approach, right? Mm -hmm. And that's such an important piece. Now, um, I'm curious, going off of that topic that we were just on, um, I think a lot of people get nervous because they're like white rice, things like that. They don't have a lot of fiber in them. And you Mm -hmm. hear people saying like, you need more fiber, you need whole grains. And um, I have lots of questions around this actually, because Um, Uh you know, as runners, we're told like you want to eat lower fiber leading up to your long run and things like that. And I'm so curious, like how far in advance should we like, you know, let off the gas on the fiber and things like that. But first let's just start with like the white grain versus the whole wheat grain and, um, how -hmm. much it really matters that, um, we choose whole grain over a white grain, you know, things like that. Right. So um, with the whole grain, like there's going to be more fiber, vitamins and minerals. Right. And when we have a white grain, like there's not going to be as much. But I do find that like most of my clients that um, maybe grew up with white rice, they're still eating like vegetables on the side. They're Mm -hmm. still eating protein on the side, like other things that are going to also contribute vitamins and minerals. And if somebody has a diverse diet already, does it really matter if that one thing is whole grain? Like, 
why is there so much emphasis on like choose this whole grain rice? And like most of my clients have tried it um, and they don't like it. (laughs) I like white rice so much better. Yeah. Like I don't really know a lot of runners that are like, I enjoy white rice and like plain and simple, but I have so many runners that enjoy white rice, plain and simple. And if that's going to like improve GI issues over white rice or like get them to like enjoy their food more and incorporate carbohydrate, then like, heck yeah, I'm going to encourage somebody to choose a white rice then. Right. Um, And I think like when it comes to GI issues, like Um, I actually have quite a few like athletes of color that don't have any GI issues like at all. Like they're like, and like, I would say like, I'm one of those, like I don't have a lot of GI problems in general in my races. Like it's really rare when I have a GI issue on a run. I'd say the only thing that's ever caused an issue for me has been like run gum. Mm -hmm. And like that was sugar, alcohol and caffeine like together. Uh Like, but like, sorry, Rangum, if you're listening, but that was like the one thing that caused an issue for me, but everything else, like I, I would say like a lot of my athletes don't have GI issues. Like they can like really take down fuel and like they can eat a lot of different things, um, prior to the race. And I don't really know exactly why that is. It could be like nutrigenomics or something going on there but I do think like if somebody's going to choose white rice and they're going to have protein and vegetables still um uh, at their meal time then like does it matter if that one thing is white rice I love that I love mm-hmm. that thought so much because who is just eating white rice almost almost all of us unless it's like morning mm-hmm. of the race or something like that mm-hmm. we're gonna put like beans or mm-hmm. I'm a vegetarian so I don't do meat but like tofu or whatever mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. vegetables and like salsa and like all the things in the white mm-hmm. rice not just white rice by itself oh yeah yep and I think like yeah like there's very few people that are just gonna like have a bowl of white rice right like most people are going to end up adding a bunch of stuff to it anyway. Um, So yeah, I always encourage like if somebody prefers white rice, like why am I going to change that? Like, why am I going to nitpick on that grain? Um, I think too, like, and most people, they like most people that I do work with, like they're going to choose like different kinds of breads. Like they rarely stick to one bread anyway. Um, Or like I have a lot of clients that, well, maybe do like corn tortillas over flour, like things like that. Um, And those I actually do encourage more because of the nutrient density, it's going to be different. And so I try to encourage more corn based things with clients if they're going to choose things like that. Um, Like I have a lot of um, clients from Latin America and they'll do like arepas and, you know, those kinds of things. And it's all corn masa. So I actually will prioritize that if somebody wants that more at breakfast time over toast, like I'm not going to encourage toast for them because they may not enjoy it. They may not like, like it as much. And like with a lot of different cultures, it's definitely like either sweet or savory. And of the lot of Latin American cultures, um, it is more on the savory end. And like, I would definitely say I'm much more on the savory end at breakfast than sweet. So like, why am I going to encourage toast with jam at breakfast time for somebody if they don't even like, if that's not in their like natural, like desire to eat that? Yeah. Um, What is it about a corn tortilla over like a white tortilla that is more nutrient dense? Um, The corn. Yeah. And then I do find too, like um, most of my clients, like they do like flour 
but um, it just depends on how it's made, right? And that's usually like the argument is like, well, like flour tortillas are more unhealthy and like, like processed. It's, um, I would say that just the way the style that it's made. Um, so like um, most of them are made with lard or like higher fat options. And so the higher fat options is going to be higher. And, and if we look at blood sugar too, like it may impact blood sugar differently than a corn tortilla okay. as well because of that higher fat content with the carbohydrate. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And it's like, eat what makes you happy. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to be intuitive like you said Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. if we're restrictive and we think it's this way or that way like we're gonna just be like like so addicted to this one way of eating like we have to Mm -hmm. do what makes us happy exactly yeah and so like I think just figuring out like what does that look like right like um I think like even when it comes to like tortillas um like a lot of people are like well you can't eat them all the time I'm like well, yeah, you can. It's just like anything else. Like if you're going to have five of them, like, are you still like prioritizing protein and fiber in the same way then? Yeah. Um, Because then like, what does that balance look like? Or what does that ratio look like? Because if you're choosing like five or six tortillas at one time, because you're still hungry, maybe we need to look at your protein and fiber as well. So that way we can get a much better balance for you if you like tortillas that much. Like, and I think like that's where like, I do have a lot of people in my messages sometimes when I talk about that, that are like, no, but you can't, it's not healthy for you. I'm like, yes, it is. But you just have to find that balance of like, you know, why are you doing like X, Y, Z amounts of stuff? Um, And you may need to prioritize other things for the amount of activity that you're doing. And so like, again, getting a good awareness of what's happening throughout your day. And do you, can you identify what is it that is a protein, a carbohydrate, a fat first and foremost, um, before you start like, like cutting out stuff that you may not need to. Um, okay. So we mentioned the fiber, like the whole grains having more fiber. And so there's this, you know, like we know fiber is good for us. We've been told our whole lives, like you need to eat a, a high fiber diet. It's good for your blood sugar. It helps with your bowel movements. But then we also know that like right before a long run or a race, like we want to like stay away from it a little bit in case it could cause GI issues. So like what's the time frame that you would suggest someone be careful about their fiber intake before a 20 mile long run? Yeah, I would make sure like at least 24 hours before um, maybe paying attention to that. Um, I wouldn't do like a salad like at dinner time as like a pre long run dinner, like that might not be something to do. Um, Or like just doing a bunch of green smoothies like the day before either, like that's not something you want to do either. But um, it may even just come down to like the types of of options you're choosing. So like cruciferous vegetables are going to cause more GI upset beans are going to cause more GI upset. And those are high fiber options. So it may even just be like switch out your vegetables if somebody does want to have vegetables. Mm -hmm. So I think like, again, looking at what you're actually doing and like, is there a pattern happening um, of like the outcome, right? Of that outcome that keeps on happening for you. So like I have clients that like have green beans at dinner time or carrots at dinner time or other things. Um, and we've had to swap them out in replacement of um, like broccoli, cauliflower, or even Brussels sprouts, or even like those kale bag salads with cabbage in it, like stuff like that, that may be causing most of the GI issue versus just the fiber itself. So 
pay attention to like what's happening and like try out different things and be open to that too. Yeah, it's like I struggle with it so much because I'm like, well, the day before a big run or a marathon, like Mm -hmm. I want to eat like, you know, all the good stuff, all the like all the Mm -hmm. nutrient dense vegetables and things like that. But it's like, no, you know, and it's just for this day. But like, would you say even the week leading up, you know, like Monday, Tuesday, Mm -hmm. Wednesday, Thursday, eat like you normally would. And then just Friday, Mm -hmm. if your race is Saturday, pay attention to the fiber. Yeah, I would say, uh, and this is going to be dependent on a lot of different people. I've had to like really reduce it like um, up to a week before for some people, but it just really depends per person and like how extreme um, the GI issues are for that person. Um, But I think when it comes to like each person, I'd say like 48 hours before is like pretty good from what I've observed. Um, But usually like 24 hours. And that's where like the pre long run nutrition is like really important. So you can, if you're practicing it enough, and you're identifying what's happening, um, or like what's going on, and like what's actually working for you, you're going to be able to do it um, on race day pretty easily as well. So choosing things that are going to like, actually makes sense for that person. So if somebody has never had like pasta the night before, um, a long run or like pizza the night before, I wouldn't recommend doing that. I would say like, maybe you want to stick to something that you've been doing like all through your long runs then. What's your favorite like meal the night before a marathon or 20 miler? Mine is actually vermicelli noodles. Um, We have a pretty big Vietnamese population here in Houston. So like, just like tacos, you'll find a Vietnamese restaurant like anywhere. Um, there's like three within like a two mile radius of me. Oh, <laughs> so, cool. um, so um, I actually really like like a tofu vermicelli bowl and I add like extra soy sauce on mine and like I'm good to go there. Are you adding extra soy sauce just because you like it or because it's providing you extra sodium for the run the next day? For extra sodium. Yeah, I'm a pretty salty sweater. So I have to like definitely increase my sodium the night before. What are the first like two or three things you look at when someone's like, ah, I start running and then, and I think morning runners have this a lot because you're like, maybe you go to the bathroom in the morning and then you start your run and you're like, oh, there's more that needs to come out. What are the Mm -hmm. first things you tell someone to like help in that area? Hydration. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's like the first one I look at, like, did they even drink water? before heading out like that's number one um or are they just like waiting to start drinking water when they're running um so I really encourage that first um I also look at if they're having caffeine or not Mm -hmm. um that's another one um so maybe I'll switch out the caffeine source if somebody's like really adamant about it or if I see like it doesn't improve I'll actually encourage like can we move your caffeine to like afterward instead um so it, that's like the second one that I look at. And then are they um, like, what is their pre-run snack or what are they doing the night before is the third one. Yeah. Gosh, it's so hard to think of eliminating my coffee before my run. I know mm-hmm. that like makes the bathroom situation more intense, but like, it's just like, I look so forward to waking up in the morning and having mm-hmm. my coffee this is why I'm not a 5 a.m. runner because I'm like, I need like a full hour, hour and a half before yeah. I start running because I want to like enjoy the full experience of my coffee. 
But I'm like, yeah, maybe I could do that enjoyment after the run and yeah. still have, because the time is still there. Mm-hmm. Like if you get up, can go to the bathroom, run, and then come back and sit down and have that enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. I have an espresso machine. And so during the pandemic, I got into a habit of having coffee right away um, before I went out on my run. And I was never really like that, um, like pre pandemic. And I was also injured through most of the pandemic too. Mm -hmm. So when I started running again, I just felt like that habit stuck for a while. And it wasn't until like maybe the last four months where I had to switch out that habit. Um, I was like, all right, I really don't want to have coffee before anymore. I really want to enjoy my coffee after my run. So that way I can reduce my, my caffeine intake throughout the day. Um, so I started to make that switch as well. And I really just started prioritizing like a noon, um, tab with caffeine before heading out. And that was like really helpful because I just felt like I needed something. And then I slowly Mm -hmm. like leaned off the caffeine entirely. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think I could get off it entirely. I mean, that's okay. You could, but like, I think it would be really painful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had, it took me a while to wean off of it, but it was, it's definitely nice. Yeah. Cause I, I wanted to shorten the amount of time it took me to like get, get out of bed and get out the door yeah. and the coffee was just prolonging everything. Um, so that's why I had to like nix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so hard. I think that that's like every runner's thing. It's like, I have to get my bathroom in before the Mm -hmm. run or like the worst feeling Mm -hmm. is actually like if you can't get a bathroom in before an actual race. Yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, that is Uh the absolute worst feeling. You're like, what is happening here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely the worst um, for a lot of runners. And I think that's why too, like the having the coffee and practicing with it, if somebody's going to do it, like you maybe want to go through some run throughs then or like do some races with the caffeine in there just to make sure that everything is good to go. Yeah. Um, last bathroom question, because I know that, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we all, all runners talk about this stuff, but mm-hmm. this might actually be a better topic for like a sports psychologist, but like it's, the like nervous poop thing in the morning before a race where you're like, you go to the bathroom, like your normal bathroom, but then you're like, it's more excessive because you're like nervous about the race, you know, do you have suggestions for runners in that regard? In my experience, I don't think that that has anything to do with what I'm eating. I think it's like very psychological, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's where like doing races is really helpful for people like, um, practice runs with it. So that way you have a good idea of like what to expect GI wise, I think too, like in terms of like nerves and even like a pre-race thing, like that's where it's also really important to practice it. Uh, because what's working in a long run may not work well for you on race day. Mm-hmm. So like having different options that you can do and like practicing with that regularly, or like doing a time trial, like if your coach has you do that, like that's also helpful. Um, I think in terms of like nerves, um, I always have my clients actually like write down a list of affirmations like before or keeping track of affirmations during hard workouts. And like, that's definitely not tied to nutrition, but I do find like 
um, a lot of my athletes will ask me for advice going in. And that's like one of the main things I give everybody is you want to come up with like five to 10 affirmations and like, just write them down. Um, and like, if you don't remember any of them during a race, like cool, but at least like now you have a list to fall back on and you'll be surprised at like how many people tell me like that, like two or three of them stuck with them and like really helped them. So like, I think like affirmations is a really big one for me. So I try to encourage the same thing with a lot of my clients. What are some of the affirmations you tell yourself? Um, some of the ones I tell myself are like uphills. So like short and sweet, like short, um, you know, short steps, like, or like use my arms or like stuff like that. Um, another one I tell myself is like, there's no other place you'd rather be right now. And like, just take advantage of it. Basically, like, this is where you want it to be. So like, like, there's nowhere else you're thinking of. Um, I think too, another one is like, um, Another one that I do fall back on a lot is um, like remembering like my grandparents, like that's a really big one for me and like how happy they be that I'm doing something that I'd like to do. So that's a big one. And then I really always like fall back on um, like remembering like the clock as well. (laughs) Like, uh, like I always like think of like, how do I want to like feel right I want to feel excited I want to feel happy I don't want to like feel nervous or anxious about it I want to be like excited so whenever I like go into like a dark place in a race I always think of the finish line and like how I want to look and like how I want to feel I love those those are so good yeah I like I really like have I would say my Strava is like a big place where I do a lot of like that work on myself is like, I write down a lot of mental and emotional things. So on race day, um, I can easily like tap into that because I've already like thought about it, written it out. And like my Strava is really like my training journal. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you share, is your Strava private? I I feel like there's like all these privacy things on Strava now. Yeah, no, it's public. If people want to go and look at it, like they can go. Okay, look at well, it. just is it Starla Garcia? It's Starla Garcia, yeah. Okay. Um, and it's like, I mean, it's, I'll share like all kinds of stuff on there. Like, I don't really care. Like, I'll have like bad days and I'll be like, felt awful. Yeah. Like, I'm just like really honest about it. Um, so if people are following me now, they'll probably see like, like a two mile run, like uploaded last week. And that was like testing out the legs when I was sick. And then like this week, they'll see like my shorter runs. Uh huh. Yeah. I love, Mm -hmm. I love Strava. I don't really get on it and like browse much, but I, I don't know why it just feels like your run is finally official once it's up on Strava for some reason. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, you know, I find a lot of joy in using it. Um, I know a lot of people like kind of have their feelings about it, but um, you know, I, I just like really find a lot of joy in like sharing like my perspective on running and like my philosophy and like, just things that I'm going through with running. And like, just like kind of I was talking about, like, it's a journey, like, in my own recovery process, I really try to process that journey through running. And like, that's why I like, try to share as much as possible, or just like, 
things that are in my brain or things that resonate with me on that day on the run, I put it in there because I want to look back uh, on like the memories that now that they're showing and popping up in Strava, like on Facebook, I want to look back and be like, oh yeah, like that was like a really great day or like, oh yeah, I remember listening to that. And like, that was really helpful. Like, do I want to go back and look and like revisit that podcast episode or that book that I was listening to on Audible? So like, I'd like to use Strava in that way just for my own like collection of musings. I was just thinking about it the other day because I, I don't do like a train. I don't follow a training plan or keep a training log or anything. And I'm about to run a marathon this fall. And I was like, what exact, how many miles was I really running when I last ran a marathon? And it's the same course and everything. I'm like, what were my workouts? And so I'm like, oh my gosh, you can just go back to Strava on the, you know, the months leading up and, and look at that. And that's actually like such a big gift because I don't record it anywhere else. So mm-hmm. I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, I know. Like um, when I was uh, training for the trials, like that was a big place where I started to log a lot of stuff. And like it's just kind of morphed into like more of a journal style for me. And like like um, it's really nice to look back on it, too, because when I was injured, I remember like, all right, like I'm going to continue sharing like my build up. And like, I would share like, all right, I did like a minute on and a minute off. Like this was what it was today. Like, and like, I wanted to like normalize that. Like, yeah, you could be like really, really great. Like at one point in your running career, but then like a lot of people have to start back at square one. Like me, I'm one of those people that I've had to start back at square one many times and like that's okay like and I like looking at that whole process like when I'm like feeling a lot better about running and like in a good place with it I like to look back on like oh yeah like I remember doing that one one on one off for like 10 minutes and like how hard that was like like how and now I like can actually like appreciate like how I had to do that to get to this next place this next place with it um what was your qualifying time for the trials in 2020 um, my qualifying time was um, 244.04. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you going to go after the new standard? Um, I I would say yes, um, but it's interesting because um, I like having a goal, and I think that's why I have it on there. Um, but I was talking with a friend about this, and I was telling her, I don't know if I would, like, feel – as bad if I didn't hit the time as I would have felt this last time. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I probably would have felt like a little bit like, uh, I wouldn't say like upset about it, but just like disappointed. And I think like now having done it this first time and like, even though it's a faster time, I don't think I would be disappointed if I didn't hit the standard. Um, I don't know. I think like my thoughts about it have like, evolved um since qualifying and I think like there's a lot of value in like not hitting it as well mm-hmm. and if, I'm really curious like if I didn't hit it what is that value anyway of like even if I did get it because when I was trying to qualify um like I had a 247 I had dnf at CIM like I had two back-to-back like potentially really great days lined up and like they didn't happen and like I learned so much from those from like not actually qualifying like I got so much out of it that like when it actually came time to qualify I felt like all right like I know what this feels like to not hit it like 
I know what it's like. And it's like, I'm going to be able to still run and I'm still going to like push myself really hard um, regardless of like I hit it or not today. And so, and I think because like I had freed myself up from that failure or the fear of it, like, I think that's really why I qualified that day. Um, so I'm thinking about it in like a similar way of like, my first goal has always been to like run under 240. Mm. So if I hit that goal, um, in that process, then like, fantastic, I'm going to be like, really happy about it. If I hit 237, then like, great, or like 236.59, then great, awesome, right, then I'm going to be also ecstatic about that. But um, I think eventually that time will come to me, um, even if it's like, not within like the next two years. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to think about it. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about the process. It's like the mm-hmm. process that gets you there. Mm-hmm. And, like we glamorize the end result. Yeah. But like the process that gets you there, that's your yeah. life. That's your everyday yeah. life. Yeah. And I think too, like, I think that's why we like resonated so much with Bronca's story so much too, because like he openly like shared it, like everything about it. Right. Like the good, the bad, and like not hitting the time. And like, he got so much out of it. Right. Like, and we all learned from, from watching him like try. And I, and I really think like, that's like what I try to remember when I did grandma's too. Like I didn't hit it and like, I openly shared it and it was crushing and I tried really hard to be happy about it. But like, now I look back and I was like, no, that, that actually was like, I was supposed to fail that day. Like I wasn't supposed to hit the the time because like, I didn't know, I didn't really know what I was chasing it either. Like I was just doing it to do it, but and like there was a purpose, but it wouldn't, it, my purpose hadn't really been developed yet. Um, and I think that's why when I qualified, it felt much different for me than like probably it would have felt that day um, in June. Wow. There's like a whole podcast episode on this topic. I can feel it. You know, <laughs> it's like there's so much. And she's talking about Peter Bromka because he he had tried to hit the trials and and he, I don't know how many times he, he went after it, but he was so, 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 so close. And he yeah. openly shared that experience. And a lot of us can, can relate to that. Not to yeah. barely missing the trials time, but maybe barely missing a BQ or a sub four or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I think there is so much there. And I, you know, my friend that I was talking about this with, she had also missed the standard and we ran together that day um, in Houston and she had missed it, I think by 10, 15 seconds, something like that, like coming really close. And she's like, I'm still running and I'm still training and I'm still pursuing it. Like not having hit it the first time doesn't mean anything. And I was like, that's a really good point. And so now like my perspective on like this new um, time is like very similar to where it's like, you know, like my first goal is under 240. It's always been that and I'm going to hold myself to that. And now if I get faster and like my body lets me get under 237 within the next two years, then like fantastic. But like if it does it in like three years, then also fantastic, right? Like, like I'm not gonna force it to happen um, if it's not ready yet. Yeah. And you can't force it. I mean, you'll get injured or sick or Mm -hmm. something, you know, so what a yeah. healthy way to look at it. Um, well, Starla, I we could go on forever, but uh, since you haven't been on the podcast before, some of the some of the dietitians in the series have been on before. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't wrap up with these questions, but with you, I want to wrap up with these questions. Um, what's something professionally or personally you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Um, you know, that's a good one. Cause I feel like I've, I did a 50 miler recently. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm like, uh, I think I would, I think I would really, really like to, there's a couple of things like running wise, like I'd really like to run comrades. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd really like to do that. Um, I think in terms of like other races, um, I'd really like to like re revisit trail and ultra running. Like um, once I like go through this next season of marathoning, like that's, it's, it's still kind of calling me. Um, I do like training for marathons a lot. Like I really enjoy it. Um, but I'm also like really fascinated by like ultra training and running. And I really did enjoy that 50 miler a lot. I did not enjoy the 50 K. Um, I didn't, I didn't. Was it too short? Like you had to run like almost marathon (laughs) pace to like, feel like you were being successful at it. Yeah. Well, it's funny because in marathons you can, at least like I'm able to reach like this runner's high feeling. And like, I like to look forward to that. Like when that happens, when does that happen for you in the marathon? It happens like in the last 10 K at some point, like I just like a hundred percent, like just let go. Like I don't even fight it. I just like let go. Um, and I really think like, that's a little bit more like somatic feeling for me. So, um, I can reach it in the marathon, but I, I couldn't reach it in the 50 K. And I think it was like, because you're going at like a similar pace, but you're also having to look down at the floor and like, it just like was not relieving for me in the 50 miler. I was able to get there like several points in the race. Like I could like let go and then I'd come out of it and then I would let go again and then come out of it. So like, I think, the 50 miler it's a little bit more appealing for me for that reason um because you do come in and out of like that runner's high um so I'd really like to revisit it again and like actually get a really good training cycle under me because that first time I was coming off my injury and I felt like I had to I had to speed up my my whole training I I think I trained for like an under eight weeks which I would not recommend to anybody (laughs) it was a little stressful trying to do that but luckily my body held up well for it um but I'd really like to like really train for a 50 miler like in a really solid way um I think like professionally in terms of like being a dietitian I think I'd really like to really create more things um, in regards to like inclusivity. And um, I'm really like working a little bit more on that and like pivoting more into like um, different options that are more inclusive for people. Um, And I also think like thinking about more wellness and more of my BIPOC clients as well. I've always been a little bit hesitant to like niche down into BIPOC communities, but um, I really see like I'm probably headed in that direction. Like my community continues to ask for things and like just kind of meeting them where they're at now. Um, So yeah, I think that's where I'm headed professionally. That's awesome. It's so important for people to have a dietitian who kind of like understands their background more too. 
it's mm-hmm. like someone in the BIPOC community that wants to go to a therapist, you know, like, mm-hmm. like a black person might want to go to a black therapist rather than a white mm-hmm. therapist, things like that. I think that that's so important. Right. Yeah. And you know, like, um, it's been interesting, like really learning about more communities of color. Cause I've always only, I mean, I'm a Hispanic woman, I'm a Latina and like, I didn't know a lot about different types of communities. And like over the last like two years of working for myself, I've had to like really learn in the same way that like my white colleagues have had to learn. Um, And like, I think because like a lot of my clients were coming to me from different backgrounds, like it really like opened up my eyes to there's this huge gap here and like I really have to like do my my own work and like understand and like really work to like help my clients more um so like over the last two years I've like invested a lot of time money and energy to like learning more about different communities and like um I've shared a lot too with like friends and family that like I started to only like read books from people of color. I started to like really look for more podcasts featuring like runners of color. Like those are things that I started to exclusively do so I could like understand more of their stories and like how could I meet them as well in their nutrition journey. That's really cool. And it's important. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the best most recent book you've read? The best, most recent book that I've read, um, ooh, I read Crying in H Mart. That one was really interesting. Um, and I also read um, the one that I listened to the most in my ultra training. I listened to it like three times. It was called um, For Brown Girls with Sharp Edges and Tender Hearts. That one was also really interesting and it really spoke to me. Um, and right now I'm reading, um, fresh banana leaves. Um, who's the author of the for brown girls with what was it? Tender hearts and sharp edges, um, sharp edges and tender hearts. Um, Ooh, I don't know the, the author of it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't know the authors. That's yeah. Okay. We can Google that and look it up. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, the but- other one was what? The other one is Crying in H Mart, and then I'm currently reading Fresh Banana Leaves. Okay. Do you always do Audible or do you read read? Um. So Fresh Banana Leaves is a is a hard copy, yeah. but I do a lot of Audible. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you I, do you do Audible on the run? Yes. Yeah. I needed to like find stuff for like those two hour, three hour runs I was doing. I have <laughs> a hard time getting into like Audible books on the run. I can do a podcast better than a book. Yeah, I was doing podcasts, like a lot of them. And then I ran out of episodes of like from people of color. And so I was just like, I had to go to books and what I was really doing too, because I had never done a 50 miler. Like it was terrifying me at the beginning stages of it um, because I didn't know like personally or like had people in my circle that were women of color that had done it and I know how to get myself prepared mentally and emotionally for a marathon and so I was like this is double the distance I can't rely on the same resources so who am I going to go to for strength I'm going to go to people that I connect with and that resonate with me and like I had to move from podcast episodes 
two books to really help me like find that strength to line up for the 50 miler. That's really smart. Who, what are some of the podcasts from people of color that you really enjoy? Um, I would say in terms of episodes, um, I really enjoyed Danae Dormy's podcast a lot. Um, it's really taught me a lot about indigenous cultures and native cultures and like their needs and like their concerns. Um, I'm also listening to, um, oh my gosh, what's it called? Uh, All My Relations. That's also another native and indigenous podcast that I really enjoyed listening to. And then I really like the trail ahead with Faith Briggs and Addie Bracey. Um, their podcast is awesome. I have really, really enjoyed their episodes a lot. Um, and another one that I've really been enjoying um, is uh, Two Black Runners. Yeah, theirs has been a, a lot of fun. And their Instagram has been really fun to follow for the U.S. championships too. So. Oh, really? Okay, I have to look at <laughs> that. I've been really enjoying theirs a lot. Uh, but yeah, those are like the main four that I rotate through a lot. And yeah, I would definitely say the trail ahead um, has been like really fun because they bring in a lot of um, stuff about the outdoors, environmentalism, climate change. Um, and it's been really, really nice to learn more about that, especially when I started partnering with REI. I really was like in the beginning stages of like learning more about the outdoors, um, the act, the lack of access as well for people of color to the outdoors. And so it was kind of this nice like meshing of like going into trail running and seeing it firsthand the lack of diversity and then like really starting to peel back the layers of what's happening there in terms of access and like who are the key players um in terms of like bringing the outdoors to more people of color like um so i really enjoyed that and that's where i learned about that book fresh banana leaves um as well so i started to listen to to that, um, I started to read that book as well. And that's been really insightful. Is that book on that topic specifically? Yes, they go, it goes through um, a lot of why um, we need to start including indigenous and native people and communities into more of these changes uh, in terms of climate change and really give them um, more of the caretaking over their lands. So it talks more about that, yeah. Um, and they bring in like the research and the science part of it. So yeah, it's been really, really neat to like, even like almost like take my nutrition knowledge and see like, where is this funneling into now, right? Like if I'm giving the tools to somebody to show up 100% in the world, right? What could that lead to when somebody is no longer thinking about nutrition 24 seven and they can really use running as a vessel to explore, right? And to continue their own journey. When they're able to do that, what does it pivot into now, right? Like, are they going to be somebody that's more active um, or they're going to fall into more of the activism role? Do they do more environmental work? Do they talk about more diversity inclusivity now because now they feel confident in their body and they can show up for running every day? Like, where does that fall into? So um, I really like have started to learn about these different ways that me being a dietitian can really impact other people and even like in terms of agriculture right like 
that was one of the things that I started to really understand, like wanted to learn more about was the impacts of, of agriculture. Um, and I grew up in the border town, so I've always been around agriculture, but I didn't know how to bring it together. Um, and we do see a lot of like the impacts of um, like sociopolitical things impacting climate change as well. Okay, we all need to read that book. I'm going to put it on Audible. Yeah, it's a really good one. And yeah, the trail ahead has been really insightful. Oh, that podcast too. Yeah, it's it's like looking at things totally holistically. Yeah, yeah. To me, I guess like, um, yeah, being a dietitian and a runner, like listening to it, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm like, oh, this is like, this is interesting. And like, this is how I see like, my communities, like when they're no longer like frustrated, overwhelmed with nutrition, like this is the impact that they get to have on the world. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, last two questions. Who's someone fun, motivating or inspiring you'd like to have coffee, tea or cocktail with? Oh, um, Ooh, uh, this is, this is definitely a hard one. Yeah. I've had a lot of, <laughs> there's like a list of people. Um, I would really like to run with Leo Manzano. Okay. Um, he is a top one for me. Um, but I'd say like in terms of having coffee with, um, yeah, I think I would probably really enjoy like chatting with probably Faith Briggs. Um, yeah, I think she's like, re- and I really enjoy her podcast. So I'm definitely fangirling over here. Um, and then I just listened to a podcast with Camille Heron. And oh my gosh, I would love to go on a run with her. Was it rich, her on Rich Roll? Yes. Yeah. I just saw that that just came out. I was like just about to email her to be like, to see if she wanted to come back on my show because it's been like a couple years. And then I saw yeah. she was just on Rich Rolls and I was like, maybe I'll wait a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I loved that episode so much. Yeah. It just like made me an even bigger fan of her. Um, but yeah, I would really like to like go on a run with her. She just seems like a very happy mm-hmm. human being. Yes. Yeah. And I, I had heard that she was like a, uh, one of my coaches had met her um, and said that she was like one of the kindest, happiest people on the planet. Um, and this was like a couple of years ago. So it's nice to like, um, like listen to that episode. And she's been on so many episodes before uh, and uh, other podcasts as well. But yeah, it was like really nice to like listen to that conversation. Yeah, I actually met her so randomly before she really got big. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like doing some work with the Carmel Marathon in Indiana and she yeah. she was like doing, you know, marathon tours kind of like, you know, running Olympic yeah. trials, qualifying times at like all these different marathons. It was before she really dipped into the ultra scene. And I remember being like, are you nervous? And she was like, no, why would I be nervous? Like she was just so happy and like carefree about it. And I'm like, that's why that's, I mean, obviously she's ridiculously talented and hardworking, but like, I think that's like a huge piece of why she's gotten so far in the sport is because she's like truly just like happy and loves it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it made me think a lot today. Like, okay, like how can I like, cultivate like and generate more happiness like through my running and so like it was nice to listen to especially since like I'm like on the I guess the building blocks again in my own running so I'll have to listen to that maybe I'll listen to that on my run tomorrow um okay what is your last message to leave with the audience Starla 
Um, I, my last message to leave with everybody, and I think like we kind of touched on it already, but if food is taking up so much space in your brain, like there's, um, there's definitely a way to work through it. And I always like, like to encourage people to think about, like, imagine how much space you'd have for other things that are so much more meaningful and like who and what you'd be able to show up for. And maybe that's where like your purpose um, is really lying is on that other side of all the food overwhelm. That is beautiful advice. And I think that can be applied to whatever it is that's taking up space in your brain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Starla. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. I hope you learned a little something from Starla today. Thank you, Starla, for coming on the podcast. Don't forget to follow Starla and learn about what she's up to. She's Starla underscore shines on Instagram. She has a podcast, Fuel Your Run podcast. And you can find me personally. I love to connect with listeners on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626 over there at Lindsay Hine on Twitter. And we have a great Facebook group. We'd love to hear your feedback from this episode. Any questions or follow-up comments you have to make in that group. It's all have another podcast with Lindsay Hine over on Facebook in the groups section. Big thanks to Inside Tracker and Athletic Greens for supporting this episode. Go to insidetracker.com slash another for 20% off your order, off the entire store, whatever you want to purchase. Code another will work for that. And you can also go to athleticgreens.com slash Lindsay. You'll get a full year supply of vitamin D as well as five travel packs of AG1. All right, friends, we've got another great one coming out next week on Monday for the Nutrition for Athletes series. Thanks for being here. Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you Friday on the podcast.